The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Isabella Kaminska, founder editor of The Blind Spot, who's been in the journalism side of things for quite some time. Um, Isabella, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, what have you done throughout your career? And what do you do now? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. So what have I done in my career? Quite a lot, a lot of journalism. I've been, I was at the FT for 13 years. I was editor of FT Alphaville, which some of you may know. Before that, I worked at CNBC, Reuters, Platts. I did some time at BP as well. And I started started off on English language newspapers in the former sort of Soviet Union and in Poland. So that's my rough history. And now I am founder editor of The Blind Spot, but I've also taken on a new hybrid role um, in that I'm also working for Politico, heading up their finance growth uh, and development. Well, that's what I'm doing now in a weird new hybrid role, which I think is quite unique for the market. How has journalism changed over the last you know, two decades or so, um, aside from just sort of the obvious aspects of information, access, internet? So what, what's changed? What's evolved? What's gotten better? What's gotten worse? So, you know, I've been at this for 20 years or more. And when I got into it, I think, you know, I was very purist about it all. I wanted to change the world, but in a sort of truth-seeking Woodward and Bernstein way, I think that was, you know, sort of uh, incredibly naive and foolish, you know, I want to change the world type mindset. Um, And, you know, I think it was very, I think journalism has always been a sort of vocational industry People don't go into it for the money necessarily. And, you know, the I think the main difference is when I was learning journalism, it was all about balance, holding people to account, but also telling really interesting stories. And that meant interviewing everybody. So you could get as, you know, I don't think there was any stigma associated with, with interviewing bad guys. People would have been equally interested to interview Saddam Hussein as, you know, as anyone else. I mean, the the the, the impetus was to to get behind the story, understand what was going on and hold those people to account. It wasn't um, as focused, I guess, as it is now on whether someone has a right to speak on a platform or not. Um, that has been a really big change in my lifetime. And I guess, you know, people like to say that journalists are more campaigning these days. I, I tend to disagree because I think there's been a campaigning element to journalism for you know since the year dot. Journalists have always been on one side or the other. What I think has changed, however, is that the market for neutral news has been slightly corrupted by the campaigning news, and so it's hard to find proper neutral voices or voices that are prepared to look at all perspectives. And I guess for investors, I think this is a really big thing because investors, if you're going to invest wisely, you can't necessarily block out the voices and positions or perspectives that you don't like. You need to account for the entire market because everybody can like, everybody operates in the economy. (laughs) So even the people, you know, even the opposition buys toothpaste, right? So it will, 
there will always be a an effect um of you know the full spectrum of of society in your in your economic model and and i i don't think investors are doing themselves any favors if they refuse to look at the whole picture and that's where blind spots occur and the purpose of the blind spot is to look at the full spectrum of stuff that's going on and and disassociate yourself from the kind of passion like you can analyze these things without you know you're not necessarily endorsing things but you can't ignore them and um and that's really the mantra that i'm trying to put forward with the blind spot yeah and i think i think the the challenge you'd probably agree with me is that objectivity gets lost when you have to focus on ratings which means you have to then f- at least that's thinking uh, factor in entertainment and passion, right. To get people to, to tune in. I, I'm, I'm curious, was there some kind of major catalyst or event or year where news journalism shifted more towards that sort of personality driven as opposed to neutral driven type of way of expressing a story? I think that's been happening over time. I mean, there have been subtle changes all along. It's all to do with the nature of media. I mean, Marshall McLuhan's famous observation, the medium is the message. I think we have slowly been adjusting to the internet system and that disrupted a lot of established business models. And I think it has led to direct access with your readers through Twitter or whatever. So, individuals are getting empowered in some way. So the days of like, you know, when I started, I was at Reuters and, you know, we didn't have bylines that were a big new novelty at Reuters when I was there. They'd just come in, like for a long time, there were no bylines. And there were columns in many newspapers that were, you know, effectively byline less from Lex to Buttonwood in The Economist, whatever. There, There are there are less of those these days. There isn't a sort of house. I mean, editorial pages still have a house view, but the the names are now front and center. So everyone is the skin in the game that a reporter has is related to their reputation. And, and that I think has changed the nature of a lot of writing. Um, But it's also confused the whole system because when, when you were operating under a house voice, you had to comply with the masthead values of that publication. Whereas now I think you, the individual, you know, the BBC obviously has had a really tricky time managing all these, you know, heavily opinionated reporters because they have a strict mandate towards neutrality and, and journalists, you know, trying to suppress journalists from having an opinion is really, really hard. So there's been a lot of dis. In disquiet in the BBC when, you know, their Twitter policy was saying you can't have opinions and you have to be objective. It's, you know, there is a real, there is a real challenge because journalists are people and they are, they are going to have opinions and they can't be priests or Jedis that, you know, completely sacrifice their personal life. For them. I mean, they could do, but it, then there would be a, a, a far fewer amount of them. So what I, my view is, is it's not, the problem isn't that journalists have opinions. It's when they are not transparent about their agendas. So it's fine to have a, you know, if you're going to be an activist for X, Y, or Z, fine, work for an activist paper or a publication that makes it clear that this is where you stand and you're aligned with that mission. The worst thing in the market, as far as I'm concerned, the neutral, the platforms that say they are neutral, but they're actually full of people pushing an agenda. And that is, you know, that is where it's wrong. And it's incredibly, you know, the other thing is where when the masthead says X, and then it, the paper has been kind of like, taken over by a completely different mindset, and then you're misselling really to your readers. So I really want to advocate alignment between journalistic views, and opinions and the publications they write for. And if they write independently, um, that's fine, but it's tricky for the marketplace because, you know, you to do due diligence due diligence on every single piece you read. Um, if you know, if if it's part of a brand or a newspaper, you kind of get the idea. Oh, it's Fox News, you know, it's right wing. The Guardian, you know, it's left wing. But to do due diligence on increasingly like teeny tiny media establishments, it's really hard. Which is why I'm advocating for a lot of the independents to group together under under clear values like guilds, because I think that will help retain independence whilst disciplining the independence and making them be 
in their own right um, held to account because you don't want to like shift out of mainstream media and then just create equally kind of crappy journalism on the independent side. So that's, that's my view of things. I don't know if that really answered your question. Yeah, no, no, but, but, but it's interesting because even that, that point about sort of the, the independent, almost fragmented journalism that you're seeing on social media by people that are not trained to be journalists, but they come across like they're journalists. I think muddies a a lot of uh, the way that people think muddies, you know, policy decisions because it shapes popular opinions based on opinions that may not be based on any kind of facts. This is more just a, a curiosity for me, but what are the skills that, you know, real classically trained journalists have compared to other people that claim that they are journalists that are just tweeting about something that they're observing locally? I mean, there's got to be some, it's got to be more than just sort of a function of somebody trained for versus somebody who didn't. It has to be something in terms of the way that one thinks about things. I think... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. First of all, jurisdiction really matters. And one of the problems with the Internet is that there is no it's really hard if everybody writes in English, you don't really know, you know, what jurisdiction they hail from very easily. And the rules in the UK are very different to, say, America, where you have free speech protections to a different level than we do. Right. We're very much bound by libel fears um you there are really big consequences in the uk if you smear an oligarch right you will get probably lawfare to bits if you misreport on a court case in the uk there are real consequences you could go to jail so and that's sort of the thing that amateurs don't really appreciate at least in the uk and you saw that with the famous case of tommy robinson who was a kind of provocative provocative commentator who who claimed that he I mean the judge threw him in he was found in contempt of court because he was he was basically breaking the court reporting rules on there are all sorts of protections for people who are being uh, tried and in a bid to not influence the trial right and he was like oh I'm, I'm a journalist I'm I'm reporting on things but actually he was he was not not doing that because he if he was a journalist he would have known that there there are restrictions to speech when you are reporting on trials in the UK, right? So those are the sort of basics that you get taught when you go to journalism school, legal, libel, risk, etc. In terms of, you know, how you operate or work a story, it's often a function of which newspaper you're working for. Every good newspaper will have a code of conduct or ethics and house opinion on sourcing, whether they accept anonymous sourcing or whether they don't, or how many a scoop, how many, you know, different sources you need before you can go with it. Like, so that's kind of variable, but overall there's good practice. And I guess one of the issues is that there isn't an international standard setter in this world. I think of it in market terms and I think, why isn't there one? Like there should be some sort of international accounting standard type thing for journalists that is, um, you know, that can allow everybody to kind of conform with a specific criteria, which then allows the market to categorize you very nicely, like you would do some bonds and then give you a rating for it. Right. So that's, that's how I, that's what I would like to see in the journalism market, like some sort of self-regulatory mechanism that allows us to immediately know, well, this, you know, ex-journalist, she affiliates with this particular school of journalists, um, that means this is this is to be expected from her, et cetera, et cetera. And if she breaks, if she doesn't comply, she'll be ejected. She won't be able to carry that sort of, you know, stamp of approval, right? So that would be that would be what what I think can solve a lot of the problems that we're facing these days. But and then and then you can train people in in different, you know, in terms of 
that's how amateurs can be filtered through the system. That's not to say amateurs, there isn't a place for amateurs and citizen journalists. I think there is, actually. But I just think it, it, they need to be clear about where they're coming from. So as long as you're transparent, I think that's that's the key thing. And if you are not a professional, you know, how else are you being funded? Who's funding you? What's your agenda? Because that's, you know, at the end of the day, if journalists get paid to write, if you're an amateur, you're like a, you know, your real your day job is is trading stocks or, you know, working for X company, you can't necessarily trust that that is a objective take and not enough people are transparent about it. How does financial journalism differ from other forms of journalism? And really, really where I'm going with that is I think there's a, a cynicism around financial journalism in that you don't have the sort of real investigative type of work. I mean, I I saw not too long ago the uh, the Madoff documentary on Netflix, and it's it's like it seemed pretty obvious with hindsight, but a lot of journalists clearly were not able to kind of pinpoint that something was off in the investment return pattern from Madoff. Is there something that's fundamentally different about the way journalists cover markets versus uh, cover other news? No, I mean, in theory, we are. You know, there are two types of journalism. There's reporting and then there's sort of analysis and opinion, right? And um, or speculation, as you might call it. And the fundamental kind of reporting side of things is the same, I would say, everywhere. It helps if you know and understand the topic because it helps, you know, in terms of your ability to identify a good story or a scoop or, you know, because really it's about recognizing what the market wants so if you have some financial expertise you're probably going to be better a better reporter but the actual kind of process is similar i mean we are not in the if you are reporting you're not in the business of doing sort of due diligence or academic research level kind of you know testing of, of of what you're putting forward like reporters report the clues in the name so we have a hunch for a story or something's happened and then we will talk to one person and then we will talk to another person and we will kind of try to assess the credibility of the people we're talking to and there will be different factors we consider in terms of who is a better source or or, or voiced quote and certainly we will always want to speak to people actually in the business rather than say observers or speculators like that's your ideal scenario is going for people who are in the business know what they're talking about and then we package what they've told us and we we kind of put it together with an angle and and we tell a story that is what reporters do and then on the other side you have opinion and analysis and that's kind of going into this you know analysis moves into the sort of research side so there's you know there's a bit of crossover there and often like analysts and researchers think they can make good journalists because there is a bit of a crossover there and that's a more analytical type of journalism and opinion obviously is you're being paid to have an opinion and and you're good at it if you have if you provide insight which is if you're commenting on financial markets, you know, it's going to help if you have some financial experience or, you know, economics or certainly you're not going to listen to the opinion of someone who's never worked in or had much experience in markets, right? So I think that's important. And I don't think, I, I think readers sometimes don't appreciate the difference between reporting or news reporting and the other type of journalism. And they're supposed to be quite segregated, although these days the two get merged as well. Although, in my opinion, anything that has opinion, you know, opinion columnists and writers can report on events, right? Because they they're doing it as part of their opinion and that you can communicate facts and news and scoops indirectly within the framing of an opinion piece. Like you can provide new information. But reporters, if your job is like being a reporter, you shouldn't really have an opinion. So if your product is branded as an opinion thing, like the blind spot is an insight and opinion-based thing, which can touch upon reporting, but it's not a pure reporting thing. That's the difference. But I mean, it's not these days, those old divides are kind of going away. And it's all a bit hodgepodge. So 
who knows? I mean, Semaphore has just launched with a model where they were doing reporting and then for like two thirds of the story and then at the bottom kind of giving their hot take on it, which is an interesting evolution of, of the segregation. Like the, the idea there was that they were going to make it clear what is opinion and what is reporting, right? But in my opinion, that also lands you in hot water because in reality, it just turns the whole thing into opinion. Because once you put your opinion on it, you can't be you can't be neutral, right? So that's that's my take. Yeah, no, that that's a uh, an interesting point. I am um, I am curious if in the financial journalism world, and we're going to talk about CBDCs and and other things shortly. But in the financial journalism world, is there as much of a concern around getting access to key policymakers as non financial journalism? So you know if if Powell oh, yeah. was speaking, right? If Powell was speaking about about something going on with the Federal Fed, you know, I have to assume that journalists are not going to necessarily want to push back on saying to Powell, "Well, why didn't you raise rates earlier?" Right? They're 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 always worried about also angering the person that they're interviewing. Talk about that dynamic for a bit, because I do think there's an interesting dynamic in terms of where we are today. If more journalists maybe countered what Powell or ECB was doing. Uh, with all this money printing, maybe there would have been more of a public push before it was too late and before inflation got out of control. Well, one of the reasons I think that, I mean, there are exceptions, so this is not entirely true, but most of the the reporters who cover, you know, press conferences are reporters. They're not going to be opinion people. The opinion people who have the capacity to sort of, you know, really take the opposite view and push back are probably going to be at home. But that said, reporters, the duty of a reporter is to challenge and to and to kind of get the most out of whoever they're scrutinizing. So that's not to say they should have just taken everything for granted, right? So, um, and I think access journalism is a real problem across the board, not just in finance. You do worry about being frozen out of off the record briefings because often what happens is that these big institutions, whether they're banks or whether they're, you know, central banks or whether they're, you know, whatever institution, they will summon, you know, X amount of reporters to off the record briefing, give them the stuff in on embargo. And then control the messaging because they know that like 20 reporters at the same time are going to write the same story. And because everyone is in the off the record briefing, you hear everyone else's questions. So you have no capacity to really differentiate yourself because everyone's, you know, everyone's heard your idea in front of everybody else. So the message gets harmonized and it creates this like once the embargo time goes, you'll notice like as a as a consumer of news, you'll be like, why is this story suddenly everywhere at the same time? Is because you know, it's been managed in that way. And all those reporters come to, to the huddle or whatever, because they can't afford to be frozen out of the process, because then they, then they won't have access to, you know, the main people. And sometimes that is useful and good, because if it's a complicated topic, you know, it's good to get an advanced reading of what it is and have it explained to you. I, I mean, it doesn't, it's not entirely crazy. But I do think it is a it is. It has a weird effect, and in politics, obviously, it happens even more so. So they have, and it happened in sports journalism. When I was at Reuters many years ago, I had to do some time on the sports desk, and I was quite shocked that when they sent me to cover some match, like that, there was I think Arsene Wenger or something giving a press conference, and there was a a murder between all the like a cartel um, between all the reporters who basically then after the briefing come together and they're like, okay, so we'll save this bit that Arsene Wenger said. We'll save that for Saturday. And then on Sunday, we'll go with the second thing. And they're doing it to like manage their own lives so that they have something for every day. And, you know, so so it's kind of like it's gamed. And the incentive is not to like, I mean, I don't know why more journalists don't just break those cartels and, and, you know, game theory and (laughs) do it alone. But then they'd be, you know, anyway, that happens a lot. So in finance, I think, how is it different in finance? I mean, it it isn't really. And and access is a big issue. And, And certainly, I think in finance, you get a lot of capture through 
you know, the events side of things. There's lots of there's lots of panels and people go, you know, like or things like Davos. You know, who gets to go to Davos? Who funds your ticket? Are you should you be reporting on it if you've if a specific delegation has paid for you to be there? Are you, you know, there's all sorts of like ways you can influence i think reporters which is why transparency is really important but then journalists don't get paid very much so they're always inclined to top up their salaries with speaking engagements at banks or whatever right which muddies all the incentives i I am also interested in hearing your thoughts on how technology artificial intelligence has maybe changed uh journalism in the sense of uh, i'm sure we're heading towards a period where there are going to be some news stories that are entirely algorithmically driven I mean, it's already happening, right? With some some articles, it's not a journalist; it's literally a chat GPT type of type of algorithm. Do you worry about that? Does that does that concern you from a not just sort of a career perspective, but just from a societal perspective? So, I do think it's interesting what's happening with with all this uh, AI. There's some obvious automation that's been going on for a long time in terms of like earnings reports and very formulaic um, writing that has been automated for a very long time. ChatGPT, I mean, I personally, having used, like messed about with it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily going to upend a journalist's job because it's, it's limited by what's on the internet and it can't, get access to people who can't sit down and get somebody drunk and get them to tell you everything, you know, that it's, and, and then when I have messed about with it, I've found that it has often been very inaccurate. So it's a very convincing liar is what I've said. But when you, when you dig deep into what it's saying, you realize there are massive errors where it's assumed this or that. So if you're copy editing G- chat GPT, like you have to cross check every single fact because it's actually really bad. At fa- it, it's, it, it does a very good job of kind of fooling you into thinking that it's authoritative. So it's like a great bullshitter and um, a con man is what I would say. And I'm not sure that's ever going to change because the only way it can change is if if it learns the consequences of bullshitting. And I don't think AI has, I mean, maybe one day it might have some sort of existential fear injected into it because, you know, it said something and it's got it in trouble. But I think we as humans, like any parent will know that intelligence, the intelligence of your of your children is is very closely correlated to consequences of bad actions. So if they do X or Y and it, it's wrong, there is usually some sort of consequence, whether it's in the physical world, they get hurt or in the emotional world, you know, or they get punished or whatever. I don't really see how ChatGPT can evolve in that way unless it gets embodied in some, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating. <laughs> what do you think? I think the whole thing is very disturbing, personally. Um, I, I get that it can't be changed, but it, it's kind of like the, you know, at, at a more extreme level, it's like who's watching the watchers? I mean, whatever the output is of AI is based on the input and then who's controlling the input. And and I do yeah. think that there, and, right, and I do think there's a psychological element to this, which is that in general, when you read something and it's in your voice, it seems more believable as opposed to if somebody's saying it to you. Right, because there's almost a little sort of confirmation bias in your brain is tricking yourself. If you're reading something, it's like, you know, you're the one reading it, so it must be accurate. So mm-hmm. that that's what kind of more concerns me from a societal perspective, more of a, a side note. Let me uh, reset the room for the remaining minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Isabella Kaminska. We're going to talk more about her venture with The Blind Spot. If you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast on all your favorite platforms. Uh, let's go to the question. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. The kind of, I guess what you're trying to say, I mean, manufacturing consent is a great 
book, one of the, you know, we studied it at journalism school. It's something I suspect is probably not studied anymore. But I think the key point there that Chomsky has always made is that when you're trying to manufacture consent, you only need to really focus on that really small demographic of of sort of middle class intellectuals, right? They tip the balance because you're not going to change the opinions of the vast majority of people. So you're just aiming for that small middle ground. And if you can, you know, so they're the they're the objective of of all the propaganda campaigns, whether it's from from marketing agencies, whoever, right? So and they can swing elections. They can, you know, create companies. They like in terms of um, popularity, right? So if if you if you capture their consent, that's that's what matters, right? And I think ChatGPT, you know, there are many. I mean, what I'm trying to say is there are many different ways you can achieve that. And in, you know, in the conventional sense, that was like the ownership of of the main tabloids or the main broadsheets and influencing them directly through through what they read but in the older days like you, you had the penny press and this is more analogous to what's going on now which was you influenced through sheer volume of and repetition of the same message and it had a kind of gaslighting effect on on society because it was just coming at you from so many different sources and i think chat gpt has that sort of uh, potential to kind of disrupt the current medium through medium equilibrium, through through effectively a kind of DDoS attack on on the system, through because there's going to be just so many, you know, if you want to sell a message, you can just get a thousand millions of ChatGPT trolls to to kind of push your agenda, right? So that that is the interesting challenge. Is it like a new form of pamphlet mass pamphleteering? Is is that what what it might amount to. But then I think, I mean, I'm speculating here, but that's why real, like linking things to real people is going to be incredibly important in the future, because you will never be sure if some avatar on online is the real deal. And so anything that presents, you know, we're going to be incredibly suspicious of journalists without any obvious kind of track record in the real world, right? And and there have been cases already where publications have been duped into publishing stories by journalists that don't even exist. Um, I think uh, there were a couple of of cases where, you know, someone had manufactured a journalist and and sent it, you know, sent the story freelance and, and then even cultivated like a totally fake profile, like from scratch. So this person had like a LinkedIn, they don't exist. They're just like a front. You know, you, you think of like espionage, you don't need spies anymore. You just need like very convincing avatars that can do the work for you. It's it's incredibly sinister in that sense. Um, so yeah, if it, journalists are going to have to show their humanity, they're going to have to show their there's going to be a proof of humanity somehow. I mean, we see that already with with all the um, captures that we have to do when we when we enter websites, right? But those are going to get incredibly difficult. And I just don't. I mean, you know, I don't know. What do you think? I think you used a word that I want to focus on, which is sinister, because I think that's a good transition to CBDCs. <laughs> okay, so because <laughs> okay. so, I actually because I know you, you you're, you've talked about CBDCs before and and. You're a fan of Bitcoin. First of all, I'm just curious, just again, from a journalistic perspective, what made you interested in Bitcoin and what are some of the concerns you have around CBDCs, which everyone has a conspiracy hat on as far as central bank digital currencies? There's some truth, I think, to the conspiracies, but let's let's go with that for a bit. So I first started covering Bitcoin, I think, circa 2012 or maybe maybe, yeah, 2012, I think. And Tracy Alloway, who's now at Bloomberg, was actually the first person at the FT to have done anything on Bitcoin and maybe did it in 2011. So we were very early to it. And, you know, I was incredibly skeptical of Bitcoin in the early days. And I think my, I stand by all my criticisms. I think the market has evolved very much how I predicted it would do in that it wasn't scarce. There'd be lots of competition. There would be chaos and and then, you know, stable coins, all that stuff. I was one of the first, I was the first person at the FT to write about Tether 
and the implications for euro dollar markets that that would have and and the rise of stable coins effectively as new money market fund type product, products so that i think i can't remember now maybe 2017 was when i first wrote about teva which sounds like not that long ago but it like at the you know things have moved really quickly on with stable coins weirdly enough or maybe it was a bit earlier i can't remember now anyway um so it was in that context i think that i witnessed the whole evolution of cbdc's and i think in the early days there was this mentality of well crypto is rubbish but blockchain the technology is brilliant can achieve these amazing things and i was very skeptical of that a because i i detected a sort of like you know most of the people saying that had no coding like ability they were clearly kind of just getting on a bandwagon it was it was a type of virtue signaling or FOMO like people were just saying it because it was the thing it was the buzzword that made them look clever in meetings like that was and most of the people I interviewed at that time who are often like c-suite people when you really picked apart like do you know what you're talking about it, it became obvious they didn't know the mechanics of it so we were all kind of like the blind leading the blind and in that context CBDCs arose from what what I would say is like a few speculative pieces by some academics, like, oh, if we'd have a Fed coin, maybe that would be better. And it really captured the imagination of uh, a number of people in central banking. But it wasn't until Libra, I would say, came along. Remember Facebook's um, attempt to corner the stablecoin market, right? That central bankers really took notice. And at the same time, roughly the same time, the People's Bank of China started sort of like playing around with the idea of digital currencies. So there are two two analogous phenomena, two parallel things going on. So Libra is happening up from the private sector. That's beginning to threaten central banks. And they begin to really think, hey, we could lose control of 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 the monetary system if if these private sector giants begin to do these things. And on the other side, you've got China pushing back against ant financial and trying to regulate. So you have this massive shadow banking system in, in China. A lot of it was based around WeChat and and financial and and these money market funds effectively that were you know digitizing the economy there and people joined in china but you know it was incredibly popular i think because it was an evolution but they did it because they they were private companies still at the time right and then and then i think the pushback started and you saw the crowding out of well the um you started seeing the sidelining of Jack Ma. And that was when the PBOC announced that they'd be effectively taking control of these, these um, payments technologies. And they, they did, what they did is that they then said, right, you can be payments companies, but if you're going to hold float as a payment company, you have to do it on a full reserve basis and we'll offer you part of our balance sheet to do that. And so suddenly all the, op- all the like, arbitrage and and you know opportunity to rehypothecate all that float and money fell away and the i think it put pressure on on those models a little bit because under a full reserve system which is effectively what they they wanted to do you'd have to i mean it it was just going to be far more challenging than than what it used to be and that's why I think Jack Ma pushed back. I mean, I'm speculating here, but like I think that was part of the whole debacle. So that's going on in China, and the the Western central banks are going, "Hey, but this is quite cool. Look, they've managed to control the shadow banking sector. If we could only do that ourselves." So suddenly, you get all these papers coming out from West Western central bankers saying, "Yeah, we should like start proof of concepts, and maybe we can do something here." We need a challenger, and then and then you had the kind of doctrine that if we don't do it, like someone else will do it. Stable coins will come in, and people won't have access to you know digital money because these are walled gardens, and we need a public good alternative because it's our duty. Like as the world digitizes, we have a duty as public institutions to provide a digital equivalent of cash. And what if, God forbid, it like cash? cash demand just falls off the cliff, then there'll be all these financially excluded people. And that is the narrative that has brought us to where we are now. And I don't, I think the 
vast majority of the central bankers are operating in a sort of they are operating in good faith. They genuinely think that they have a duty to bring cash, uh, a digital version of cash to the markets because the banking sector can't be relied on to offer everybody access to bank accounts, right? That is that is the rationale. But I'm very skeptical of that. I think there are many externalities. They're absolutely rejigging the structure of how financial system, monetary systems are organized. They're moving down the road of replicating what China's doing. And that has a bearing on on the cost of deposits. Um, it potentially starves the private sector of, of, of cash. Um, and they say, oh, well, we don't want to we don't want to crowd out the banks. And actually, we, we, we see a sort of hybrid solution where the banks can provide the wallets and all that sort of stuff. But the banks are likely to, you know, I don't see what incentive the banks have in offering consumer um, goods focused around CBDCs unless they are going to be mining data. That's the only way I can see it making sense for them. So the central banks are saying, oh, don't worry, these things will be private and we won't program them, but you'll have the option to program it if you want, because you know, programmable money is the future and it allows for innovation. But we know from how technology markets have evolved and data, you know, in my opinion, like just because you have the option to um engage in a sort of programmatic transaction doesn't mean you're empowered because in in many scenarios in the internet economy it's not really an option you can't afford not to opt out so like i have to opt into all of apple's terms and conditions because if i don't where do i go right i'm 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 frozen out of the market there are only really two viable alternatives yes they exist but you know, it's not really a viable option. And I worry that that's exactly what will happen. So you won't have, yes, it won't in theory be the central bank providing, you know, if this, then that uh, conditionality on your money, but it will be the private sector. And this this is a massive role reversal for banks anyway, because banks for the longest time have always been secret keepers. That has been their primary role in society is operating in fact there's a great paper about their role as secret keepers that who's by someone who i can't remember now who it was by a very famous monetary economist anyway the the point being that they stop being secret keepers and in creating program programmable money we end the fungibility of money itself that is my biggest concern because money is no longer my dollar is no longer equivalent to your dollar because it's the data trail that's attached to the money that determines the rate that it clears at for different different goods. So my historical data record will, you know, if I'm overweight, it might not allow me to buy chocolate at the same cost as it might allow a thin person. I mean, there's all sorts of like horrific dystopian scenarios that emerge in my head, but so yeah, and and the other thing is there's no consultation. So there's, I mean, the UK is now doing a consultation, but nobody's really engaged on the pi- public level. Like there is a consultation going on at ver- in a very sort of esoteric and and cliquey part of the market. It's not it's not like a public thing. Like if you go down the streets uh, in London, nobody knows the Bank of England is doing a consultation. And so that that also makes it feel very undemocratic. And I think for something as as big as this, you really need a democratic mandate to go ahead with it. Right, but but presumably they're not they're not bringing it to the public discourse because they know the public would be against it. I mean, I've got to assume that you know, with with depending on whatever metrics you're looking at, you know, there's a there's a there's a correlation between trust and even wanting to consider CBDCs. In other words, if you don't trust the government, why the hell would you trust? CBDCs to begin with. So it seems like there's, it's almost a non-starter to try to have it as part of the public discourse. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And certainly, you know, they are trying. I mean, the, the European central bankers have, have, have made great efforts now in the last few weeks to try and find a better way to promote the virtues of a CBDC. So they have like, start to think about the PR side of it. Um, and, 
the the sort of messages you're hearing are yeah it's pro we won't be the ones programming it and yes you know it's not entirely anonymous but it is private and you know no more no more um sort of privacy constraining than normal money where banks have to you know abide by kyc and aml and then the other thing that they're saying is uh to, to try and sort of innovation and inclusivity and 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 the the newest one that i thought was quite interesting was that we need a monetary we need a digital anchor like a digital pound to anchor the private sector monies of the monetary system because without one you run the risk that the par value of like that money money detaches it becomes like completely fragmented and there isn't a um a monetary anchor but then they base that on the idea that cash you know the lack of ability to draw cash out of an atm is going to somehow upset the kind of link between commercial money and public money and that's true to a certain degree, except where they are, mis- at least in the UK, where they are mis-selling that story is that cash, actually, actual cash and circulation is still going up. So despite all the dig- digitization of the economy and of finance, actual cash and circulation, like physical banknotes are going up still. So there hasn't been this massive Yes, they're circulating less. Maybe people are not using them for transactions in the lit markets. Maybe it's more for um, shadow exchange. Maybe it's for savings and people are using them. I mean, but it's definitely going up. Do you think that the the CBDC approach is going to be, is that inevitable? Is that fate? I mean, is there a chance that we don't adopt CBDCs, that Bitcoin does become sort of a the standard? Uh, I'm curious to hear if you think that this is just, a lot of nonsense concerns over something that will never happen or if it's a legitimate threat to uh, the way the system operates? No, I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to do it because they think if they don't do it, we will lose out to China because or other authoritarian states because they will get such efficiency from being able to manage the economy through data sharing effectively. And, and ma- so, you know, the way I see it is that in traditional economic sense, the money that the economy clears through pricing like prices adjust to to get the you know the balance of demand and supply to to match right so but in a cbdc world it's data that's going to be clearing that so you won't need that middle ground of a you know of a neutral money that adjusts in quantity or um price to clear supply and demand instead it'll be data and limitations on your access to x or y so if you've got enough if you've earned enough brownie points to get some bananas because you've i don't know say you're fat and you've lost weight and now you can have i don't know like i see it in like in an amazon sense like suppliers and consumers are going to be matched against their projected demand and desire for certain goods and that will be squared against whatever supply there is and if there's a surplus of bananas they'll create marketing campaigns to persuade you to not eat as many bananas or they'll give you kickbacks for like holding back on on banana use this week right and if there's so if there's a deficit of bananas but if there's if there's a surplus of bananas they'll they'll try to like you know find new markets uh, that weren't around or or discount heavily so, so everything's going to be more like voucher d- discount you know there won't be a the conventional clearing house of of centered on any sort of numeraire right and that creates this, the nearest thing we've had to that is Gosplan, like the planned economy under the USSR, which also had like a really crazy approach to money because it actually had four current, four, four different types of the ruble. Some were, some had different restrictions on what they could and could be used. Like some could be only used in export markets. Um, then there was like a pure like accounting ruble and then there was the ruble that you got paid wages in and they all had different earning potential but it was obviously like 50 years ago 60 years ago so you didn't have the technological capacity and there's a lot of people who think oh well gosplan only failed because we didn't have the technology to manage these things these signals from the market as cleverly but now with ai and with 
with computers, you know, we we can do away with money because from what's the phrase from each to the wants to the I like I always mess it up. So what you if you want X, you'll get it, and the market will adjust and find a way to to like like we're all we'll all be part of like an exchange, like the same way that stocks clear on an exchange, but without the price signal. Weirdly enough, because because it, it will be entirely to do with with different approaches to managing quantities. So that's how I think it's probably going to go. And and the point they're making is if they don't do it, they won't be able to compete with China because China will do it. And an economy that fails to organize itself in that way is not going to be meeting its maximum p- potential. And so you will never be able to kind of, um, you know, win a potential war with China because they will be more efficient at rationing themselves when they need to ration themselves. And, you know, if you don't have that kind of total control of the population, you will lose out. That's what I think is motivating it. I don't have any evidence or proof other than like continuing um, anxiety about China, but that's what I think is the FOMO behind it. And so they, in democracies, this is really hard because democracies are kind of crazy and disorganized and people do what they want, but that's really inefficient. So if you can just get a way to, to get everybody like, um, you know, to operate in, in sync via, via a central command system that can, you know, like turn this knob on and get these people to do that and then it seems really attractive and efficient but i think that's that's actually not going to be long-term productive because the great thing about democracies is that we have the capacity to innovate in ways that authoritarian regimes just can't so if you the more you turn us into this kind of like cog in the system the less likely we are to come up with the really groundbreaking ideas that can elevate society and really move it forward in in positive some ways not just in regressive or potentially destructive ways but i've i've been waffling now for a bit no no no, no. why well, i think the uh, for me the real takeaway is to always pay for chocolate and cash uh, i think it's sort of the way to, to think about it from a go forward perspective anyway listen everybody here please make sure you follow uh, isabel kaminska this is a, uh, a great conversation this will be a podcast on all your favorite platforms thank you isabel appreciate it The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes corrections, and bear markets.